Shalom. Welcome to the Christchurch Jerusalem Bible Study, where we wrestle with God's Word. For more information on the church, to listen to sermons, to contact us, or to make a gift, visit ChristChurchJerusalem.org. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Christchurch Jerusalem uh, for our evening study, although we are actually in the Galilee at the moment. And uh, we are in chapter 5 as we are discussing and uh, learning from Paul's epistle to the Galatians and the tensions that are within that predominantly Gentile but also Jewish community, relationship between Jews and Gentiles, and the relationship between us and the Torah and uh, what is and what is not applicable to us as believers. Now, we acknowledge that the Lord is present. We know Jesus is here. We know Jesus is with you guys. And um, we begin by prayer, acknowledging that truth. Yvonne from Brazil, sister, pray us in. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we are so grateful and so thankful that we can come freely to hear your word and that we not only listen, that we can listen, obey, and, and, and as we put um, your instructions in practice, Lord. We pray for those that are um, leading and for, for all of the discussions that they can be producing fruit and understanding in all of our lives. We pray for those, Lord, that need your healing touch, families that have been devastated by COVID, financially, physically, emotionally, Lord. And we pray that even though we may not know people around us, that we can have the heart to pray as though they are our sisters and brothers, family members, Lord. Thank you so much. Once again, we pray for Aaron, um, Pastor Aaron, Lord, and um, guide us into your truth and keep us from evil. This we pray in the name of your son, Yeshua HaMashiach. Amen. Amen. All right. As is our tradition. We read the notes from last week uh, where we had studied Galatians 4, 12 to 31. It's a summary of our discussion and the different things that people brought up uh, for those that are in podcast land and also just gives a good basis for ourselves to remind us what actually happened last week. So Galatians 4, 12 to 31. Having made the case that the Galatians are indeed heirs of the promise to Abraham, along with the Jewish people, Paul now urges them to be like him. And this raises the question, should Paul not have pointed to Jesus rather than to himself? I mean, Paul is not sinless, nor without his faults, unlike the Messiah. While it is true that we should all endeavor to keep and promote others to keep our eyes on the Lord, in following the Lord, we also become role models to those who watch us, which can be a sobering thought. Paul says he became like the Galatians. How so? Following his previous argument in chapter 3, Paul's guardian is now the Messiah, and the law is now written on his heart. Paul is like the Galatians in that he is now no longer under the law. That is, under the guardianship of the Torah, which how much we should become like Paul is debated, as Paul has some interesting things to say about women and head covering. So we become like Paul in his status before the law, 
Paul introduces some new autobiographical material that is not found elsewhere in Scripture. He refers to a physical condition that brought him to Galatia. The exact nature of the condition is not described. However, his weakened state did not stop him from spreading the gospel. The Galatians were actually blessed because of his physical condition, as it was that very weakened state that brought Paul to them. It can be comforting to know that whether we are weak or strong, the good news cannot be stopped. As Paul reflects in 2 Corinthians, when I am weak, then he is strong. Paul then describes the tension between the influences who are trying to gain converts among the Galatians in opposition to Paul. Adversarial denominations still remain with us to this day, and there appears to be nothing new under the sun. Now, the identity of the influences still remains a mystery. Now, I suspect Paul, I suspect Paul has never actually met them in person. Some people like to associate the influences with the men from James in chapter 2. Although that episode does occur in Antioch, and we are now talking about communities in Galatia. There really is no way of knowing if these people are the same Jerusalem delegation or a different local group. Paul describes the effect of their preaching as causing the Galatians to be shut out. We, we discussed exactly uh, who was being shut out and from what they were being excluded. The end result of the message of the influences was division once again. The gospel had united the community. All were now equal before the Lord and equally under the guardianship of the Spirit. The false gospel created inequality once again, causing people to want to or feel they have to work under the law to gain access and standing within the community. Paul then softens his language, informing the community of his urgent desire to be present with the Galatians, and he calls them sons. This familial term is not without its rabbinic precedent. Rabbis counted their students as sons, should the disciple actually accept the teaching of his master. Paul feels a close spiritual bond as the spiritual father figure of this community. One can certainly feel his anguish at not being able to be physically present to defend his children as they struggle against this false gospel. Paul then engages in allegory, although it was noted that what Paul does here is not technically the literal definition of allegory. Paul himself, and essentially all commentaries, describe it as allegory. God had made a covenant with Abraham that would include all the nations, the Gentiles, of the world. That covenant was not abrogated by subsequent covenants, such as the Mosaic Covenant, as subsequent covenants do not have that abrogation effect on previous covenants. The example, the Davidic Covenant, does not abrogate either the Abrahamic Covenant nor the Mosaic Covenant. Abrogation is actually an Islamic theology whereby new revelations abrogate previous declarations by Allah. Abrogation is not an element of the Judeo-Christian tradition. And those denominations that include it in their exegetical traditions are poorer for it. Amen. Abraham had two sons, 
Isaac was a legitimate freeborn son, and Ishmael was the son of the Egyptian Hagar, whom God also describes as a slave woman in Genesis 21. The two sons are allegorized as two covenants, Abraham versus Moses, two mountains, Sinai versus Zion, and two forms of Jerusalem, heavenly and the earthly one. In Genesis 21, thus in the Torah law itself, Sarah urges Abraham to cast out the slave woman, and God agrees, for he says to Abraham, do what Sarah says. Paul then urges the Galatians to do likewise, cast out the slave woman, that is, in terms of the allegory, to become and act like the spiritual children of Isaac, and thus heirs of the promise of Abraham. The inheritance of Abraham does not descend through Ishmael, nor any of his other six sons to Keturah, which according to oral Torah was actually Hagar, nor any of the sons of his nameless concubines, but only through Isaac, in whom we all share the same spiritual blessing. So that's a summary of our discussion. Now we're going to proceed with chapter five. So um, I'll read and see how long we can get through. I'm reading from an ESV. Galatians chapter five. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You're fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. We have confidence in the Lord that he will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You'll love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk in the spirit. You will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, 
there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, or envying one another. A lot there. Uh, as is our tradition, on an initial surface reading, an initial uh, thought, is there something there that jumps out at you or something that you haven't noticed ever before? Well, under which law are we not under now? Right, well, where is the Torah meant to be, Rocky? On our in our heart. heart. Correct. In our heart. Correct. And as we've mentioned before in the previous chapters, three and four, we are no longer under the guardianship of the Torah. That is, that doesn't mean the Torah is null and void. It means its, it's stewardship, its schoolmaster, its defense is not it. It's now the spirit. But the Torah doesn't go away. It's now actually on your heart. Remember, if you have no law, you are lawless. Lawlessness is not from God. The law of the spirit is, is very much in line with, with the law of God. It's the same thing. Yeah, so Romans 3.21, right? But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. So it includes the Gentiles and the Jews now. Correct. Because as, as the covenant with Abraham, uh, as Paul has, uh, I think, quite strongly um, argued in this, in this epistle, God imputes righteousness outside of the law. God imputes righteousness to Abraham before there was a law. And God imputes righteousness to Gentiles because that's what he was going to do. But he always imputes the righteousness also to Jews. Jews also get their righteousness imputed by God because you read in the Psalms that before the law, no one is righteous. Your righteousness comes from, from God. And so Paul is 100% correct. Our righteousness comes from the law. Where is the Torah supposed to be? It's supposed to be on your heart. Roddy, what was your comment? Oh, I'm going to say the same thing as you. Oh, okay. The spirit and the instructions, God's instructions, not the Hokim. Yep. That came being just, he said it, you do it because he said it, and no other reason whatsoever. That's not what it's yeah. about. It's about following his instructions because you're led by the spirit of love with him and your neighbor. And because you love him, you will do these things that he has laid out there. But if yeah. you're not following, if you're not following his instructions, then your spirit and your love probably are not of God. But if you have the love of God and the spirit of God, then you'll find yourself doing his instructions because you can and you want to. I think it's pretty simple there. Okay. Right. And so not every Jew is automatically, you know, like Romans 2, for he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit, not in the letter of the law. Correct. Right. Or the preacher who goes, I'm a man of God and makes uh, a few billion dollars and has 10 airplanes. He has nothing to do with God. He's doing nothing that God has said. He's not following any of God's instructions. The same yeah. works both ways, Jew and Gentile. Correct. Specifically, he's also, you know, um, got himself 10 mistresses, mistresses dotted around the world. If you have a look at verse 1, Paul says, Oops. freedom. Christ has set us free. Okay, that's fantastic. We're free. But what does that actually mean to be free? Because he says, stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. 
So there are two concepts here. One is slavery and one is freedom. What do these concepts mean? Now, we often talk about them in the modern world and we think in terms of slavery, humans. You know, we're really big on making sure that we got rid of slavery and, and such like. But is that what he's talking about here? He's not, it's not, I don't think he's talking about human bondage to humans. Because at the time of Paul, there were slaves. People had slaves. Paul even tells a slave, go back to his, his master. What are we talking about here? I would say from my perspective, I'm seeing this as a freedom that we are in Christ, if I put it that way. Because we're in Christ, we're not under that bondage of trying to do works of the law. Christ right. has done it for us. And so we rest in the faith that our salvation, our righteousness, has been done because Christ did the work. We no longer have to do that work to be saved. And so we're not under that bondage of trying to work, work, work to be saved, to be made right, right with God. So we have yeah. that freedom and that liberty now knowing Christ did it for us. Right. So, yes, so I agree. We have the freedom in Christ and we're not trying to earn our salvation, although... The Bible never said you could. It's just that was man's interpretation or a stream of man's interpretation. A young lady stands up to me in America in a church I was at and asks, so I have freedom in Christ. What does that mean? Can I do anything I want? So what is free? So the answer is no, but why is it no? What does freedom actually mean? I, all I can say say from that perspective is we're, we're a slave to something. We're a slave to righteousness or we're a slave to sin. And so we're either going to do the things that God wants us to do because the law's on our heart, or we are going to be lawless and do those things that are unrighteous. So right. ultimately, we're a slave to something. Yeah, we are. that's right. Paul says, I am, I'm, I'm a slave to the law. Are you sure? Yes, that's right. Paul calls himself, I'm a doulos. I can't remember which yeah. episode he says that in. But uh, he, that's one of the things he describes himself. So we, we have to remember what freedom actually is. Freedom isn't that there is no law, because there is a law. It's God's law. It always has been God's law. It's just that this law now is on our heart. We don't get to do what we want. We get to do what God wants. But we're not a slave. We're not, we're not bound to the yoke of slavery, because there was something within the, the makeup of the world, the makeup of humans, that we just couldn't seem to accept the instructions of God. We turned them into something that they were not. When we do these things, these instructions of God now, we do it with more fulfillment because of Yeshua. They actually have meaning. That's true. They have more meaning, but they still had meaning for the, the ancient people too. It's not like they read the Bible and didn't find any meaning. They loved it. As David says, I love your law. Well, why would you love that? It seems really hard. Actually, he was looking at the intention. But, Roddy, you're right. Now that the Messiah has come, we have this extra benefit of being able to see the intention clearly, or not clearly, perhaps even more clearly might be the way to describe it. It just seems in the context itself, like, was he talking about slavery, is particularly these Gentile Christians like myself, it has to do with circumcision and particularly, I guess, ritualism tied to becoming part of the people of God. And that would be the freedom that they have where they do not have to become Jews in the sense of circumcision and ritual markers, 
in order to have a relationship with God as faithful Jews always had. Thank you, Aaron. He reminded us always to put it back in the context. The context is people trying to say, well, you need to do this to be part of the people. You need to be this to, to do this, to be circumcised and to follow Shabbat and to keep Kashrut and all this kind of stuff, to have equal standing before the Lord. And Paul says, no, that is a false gospel. You're all equal before the Lord. I don't care where you come from. I don't care the color of your skin. God loves you so much. He's redeemed you. And he even said he was going to, so much so to our father, Abraham. And so now you're free. But there's this other gospel that had had uh, had come in. Yeah, like for me, um, it, it just, there is a yoke. Um, but it, it's interesting that, um, you know, the slavery, it's it's when, when instructions or Torah is perverted into legalism. And so that creates, and it reminds me of Acts 15, 10, he says, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers, that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. But at the same time, you know, slavery, you think of, oh, throwing off those shackles, right? So now I'm throwing off the, the law, throwing off whatever the instructions, but he does say, you know, God says, uh, or Yeshua, he does talk about a yoke and, and, and uh, he says, you know, his yoke is easy and the burden is light. And he talks about the yoke of obedience to, you know, to, to, to Torah, the, to, the true understanding. And, and um, for me, it's like the different kinds of yoke, the slavery yoke of the, of, of, of the legalism of that, that whole wrong interpretation of the instructions of Torah. And then the yoke of Yeshua that he says it might burn easy. It's light. You can do it in the power of the spirit through the heart. And for me, it's, it's just a difference. There is still a yoke but it's yeah. a different kind of yoke. In the, in the late Second Temple period, the way that they would describe these, uh, the law and the idea of, of submitting to God was through the idea of the yoke of the kingdom of heaven. It's not a term you find in the Hebrew Bible, but it is a term that, that develops in, in the late Second Temple period. And the concept was that everyone has a yoke. Everyone is attached to some kingdom, to some form of law, to some sort of master. No one's actually there by themselves. There's only one person on the planet, uh, and I'll say that literally, that actually is yoke-less. Who's that? Asatan. Asatan, which is uh, one of his names, Belial, Bli-ol. The ol in Hebrew is yoke. Bli is without. He is the yokeless one. He is thrown off the yoke of the kingdom of heaven and has decided to be his own master and then has then created his own puppets. And we are attached to somebody. We cannot sit on the fence. Revelation hates the idea of fence sitters. You're either in the kingdom of darkness or you're in the kingdom of heaven. We all want to be in the kingdom of heaven. As, as Yeshua says, take upon yourselves my yoke. You've got to be yoked by something, but the best yoke is actually mine. Because my burden, my burden is light. It's not hard. It's not difficult. In fact, I'm carrying most of the stuff for you. You know, there's a lot of stuff there uh, that, that Messiah is, is doing. And, it's, um, and one of the names of the enemy is indeed the yokeless one, Belial. Do we cue Bob Dylan now? <laughs> well, if you were David Pelleggi, yeah, you would. Okay. Exactly. <laughs> So for people who don't know, Bob Dylan probably happens to be David Pelleggi's favorite rock star and he manages to bring him into just about every sermon, Bible study or religious discussion. 
It's actually really quite clever if you think about it. And he's Jewish, just throwing that out there. Okay, so uh, verse two. Now here's an interesting way of phrasing what you say in a letter that gets recorded for 2,000 years. So I'd like to hear your opinion. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. Right. What do you make of that sentence? I, Paul, say. Okay. So if he had just said circumcision has no value, would that read different to I, Paul, say circumcision has no value? Sounds like an opinion. Sounds like an opinion, Rocky. Correct. What would you think? Okay. Take out the words I, Paul. Then what would you say? It's an interesting con- concept because it's an if. It's an, uh, the, those if statements don't actually exist. It is true. It says, I, Paul, I say this. Just because Paul says it, what does that mean? He's taken on some authority. Okay. Paul also says women shouldn't have any authority over men. So where do we draw the line? So I read it differently. Um, Go for it. I- I look at it and it says that if you decide to capitulate to this pressure of being circumcised and therefore you are, by doing that, you are right in Christ, then why even bother believing in Christ? Because he did it all and you're just throwing it away. Excellent. That sounds like a really good interpretation right there, Christine. Fantastic. Especially for Gentiles who have never been asked to be circumcised. Remember, that was a covenant that God makes with Abraham. And he says, you'll keep this forever, you and your descendants, physical descendants. That's not to say that people who, Gentiles who are circumcised are any less or any more. People get circumcised for all kinds of different reasons. But the the interesting concept is, is, is what I'm just asking is the phrase, I, Paul, say this. And when reading Paul, we have to remember that the epistles of Paul are not Gospels. You don't read them the same way as you do a Gospel. Yeah, but it's inspired by the Holy Spirit. And there's lots of other scriptures that say very much the same thing. Yes, you look yes, at yes. Romans, Philippians. I agree with you, Peter, absolutely. But Paul also says some interesting things about women, which many denominations who also read Paul don't hold. They would but say exactly the same thing to me. Aaron, just go back to your same principle that we take it in its context, right? And in that context, it was a very patriarchal society, right? So why can't that be like a cultural interpretation? Like, in other words, later in that passage, you're talking 1 Corinthians 11, that it goes on to say that the hair is given as a covering. And Mm -hmm. it just, that was the culture back then. Didn't men wear things too for praying? You know, so you you have to take those scriptures in the the case. We live in a in a society that doesn't have so much patriarchy, even though people are whining about it, it's just not true. And women have a lot more freedoms and a lot more opportunities now. So it's just different. It's a different society. It is a different society. And we have to understand context. But we also have to under also at the same time understand that some things or many things in the Bible don't change. Just because society now accepts homosexuality doesn't right. mean that we do too. But, but I'm so, just yeah, making the point that I don't think head coverings are a, are a, are a, uh, a law for all time. Correct. I think yeah. so I would agree with you. We have to continue injured. to look at things in context, as 
as we always say, put it into context. Weren't women at that time, weren't they coming into the into the services and like, you know, speaking out loud and trying to get guys to go off to the, you know, the places like Diana's place, wherever they make out or whatever? <laughs> uh, right, I'm not, but let's, they were, speak, they were uh, up disrupting the service, I'm saying. Yeah, that's right. Just to keep a, a context on that too, from my perspective, there is a principle of that because Christ is the head of the man, the man's the head of the woman. There is that principle. And yes, we have to take things in context, but there is a hierarchy. And so the man actually is the head in a sense. Well said, Vida. So yes, Sharon, 100% agree. We have to always keep things in context. Absolutely. Vida, 100% agree. Let's always (laughs) look at the the flow through of scripture and the hierarchy and, and and the way God sets things up, the order of the universe. Phil, Father Phil is present. I'm going to introduce you. Are you here, Phil? Did I just see you here? I, I, yeah, no, I, I am. I'm, multi, I'm multitasking, as you're aware. But yes, I am here. I'm listening okay. in. For those that don't know who this guy is, okay, uh, Father Phil is uh, the treasurer of CMJ UK. Actually, we don't call him treasurer. What do we call you? Um, P- portfolio for finance. <laughs> portfolio for finance, okay. Um, yep. And of CMJ uh, UK. Delightful to have you here. He's also created an online community called Hope Church, uh, St. Jude and St. James, which is an excellent community that's online. Uh, I'm a part of that as well. So, Father Phil, what have you got to say? I I was just going to add that Paul predominantly in his context uses two phrases. The first is, I say not the Lord, and the other one is the Lord says not I. And and, and so one is uh, Paul's... Uh, how Paul sees things in the context of his understanding of, um, of, of Yeshua and Almighty God. The other one is uh, an instruction that we must do this. And so the Lord says, vis-a-vis, I say. Yep. Very good. Um, so here in this section, Paul is saying, I say, and he's talking to, to Gentiles. If you accept circumcision, Christ is a, has no advantage. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that you are obligated to keep the whole law. So is he referring to people who uh, are circumcised now? No, he's referring to this, this uh, movement that is in the Galatian community and outside of it, but predominantly to the Galatian community that you have to do several of the works of the law, circumcision, Shabbat, kosher, to have any sort of equal standing before the Messiah. And that is just simply a false gospel. Aaron, he's referring to Acts 15, those guys. So and certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Is that? Yeah, there there were some that were, that there was this, there was a movement within Judaism that, to believe in God, you had to be circumcised. You had to become Jewish. But there were, at the same time, and we have to be also clear with this, there was also a movement within Second Temple period Judaism that Gentiles could believe in God, and they'd be called God-fearers. And they were there. We have lots of proof, both in the, in the Bible itself and in archaeology. But there were extreme elements that advocated one way or the other. And it seems that some of these guys... Uh, were affecting Paul's community and the new and the new believers in the Messiah, because, for example, in Acts chapter ten, Cornelius 
He is a God-fearing Gentile. He attends the synagogue. He prays, and he hasn't been circumcised. And there might have been those who were demanding him to be circumcised, but there were also probably people at the same time demanding him not to be circumcised. So there would have been, been both. If you look at this and you, you see Paul, it's as if Paul's saying, if you get circumcised, you, you're losing Christ and all that. But he goes and circumcised Timothy. So that's not what he's saying here. He's saying, that, he's saying that it's not about circumcision or uncircumcision. It's about trying to do something that will earn your way to God. Correct. And if we do circumcision thinking that that's going to add us another level to get to God because Christ isn't enough, that's when we're losing focus. And he's saying here that Christ is the only thing that gets us to God. And whether we circumcise or uncircumcise, let that between us and God. Absolutely. That's, that's absolutely well said, Vida. That's actually fantastic. We're all giving you a two thumbs up for those that are watching on podcast land. Um, <laughs> let, that's it. That, amen, Vida, says Roddy. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, well said. He says in verse 4, you are severed from Christ. I mean, oh, my gosh, that's a horrible thing to say to somebody. Okay? You were in there. You, 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 you were part of the community. You had accepted the Messiah. And now you've cut yourself off by, by cutting something off. Isn't that terrible? You severed yourself from the Messiah, who you would be justified by the law. You have fallen from grace. Okay? Because as we know, even from the Psalms, and as Paul has argued with Peter, even Jewish people are not justified by the law. They get their righteousness from the Lord. Right? He's the one that imputes righteousness. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. I mean, and this is a nice uh, way for him to talk, right? Because he, he's, descri he's describing like himself as part of uh, both the nation of the Jewish people and as brothers and sisters with these Gentiles. Through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves, that's we as, as Jews, but also you guys, we also eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness, which we know is imputed by God, not because we did anything, but because he loves us so much because he's, he's given us his Messiah, because he's revealed his perfect will to the world, because he wants to redeem that which is already his. For in the Messiah, there is neither circumcision nor uncircumcision, which counts for anything, but only faith working itself through love. That is not meaning Jews don't get circumcised. That is not what Paul is saying. What he's saying is that Jews and Gentiles have absolutely equal standing before the Messiah. But he is not saying no one should circumcise. Incorrect. Yeah, incorrect. Correct. Because there are some people that would say that they have to. Uh, or that, that Paul is saying he's, he's getting rid of circumcision. And I, and I would, would strongly argue against that. I don't think he has ever said such a thing. So, yeah, so verse three is this point, right? I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. So isn't that part of the deal? Like if you're signing up with that covenant, quote unquote, right? As a Jew, that's you're if, agreeing to keep remember the whole what law. Said, that's if you were trying to work towards and earn your salvation. That has not right. got to do with an obedience to that, that, that God said to Abraham, you keep this forever. So someone who circumcises their son as an obedient sign to a covenant that God made with Abraham has nothing to do with working their way into heaven. That is being obedient. 
Does that make sense? Obedience is not works righteousness. Grace, as Dallas Wheelwood has said, is not opposed to effort. Hmm? No, but this was the Jewish law back then, right? So it was it an obedience to God that you were circumcised, all and then Jews you had to keep agreeing That's to keep just a the given. law of God. All Jews get circumcised. And just because you get circumcised doesn't mean that you're now a good Jew, does it? Right? Lots of people get circumcised today in Israel, and the majority of them are secular. Just like some people get baptized as kids. Doesn't mean anything. In fact, some people get baptized as adults. Still doesn't mean anything. Just because you happen to be sprinkled with water, because you happen to be cut on the eighth day, doesn't actually mean that you're in heaven in the world to come. J.C. Ryle had pointed out that most likely Judas Iscariot himself was baptized and also received ordination to some degree under Jesus. <laughs> Who said that? J.C. Ryle. J.C. Ryle. That's awesome. Yeah, well, for Kurt, that's a good thought, Aaron, because actually he was in, in the in crowd. Yeah. That's true. This is 100% true. Yeah. And uh, didn't help him much. <laughs> His heart, his heart wasn't circumcised. Right. I mean, it's, it's always been about the heart. Remember that. It's always been about the heart. It's always been about the intention of the heart. Write these laws on your heart. Circumcise your heart. Uh, make your, Get yourself a, a clean heart. Take out hearts of stone and put in hearts of flesh. It's always been about the heart. But that's never been opposed to effort because Paul in Ephesians says, by the way, that's coming up in the lectionary readings, I urge you, brothers, in Ephesians 4, make every effort. He doesn't say sit on your butt and let the Holy Spirit do stuff. He says you make an effort. What, you're trying to work for my salvation now? No. Make an effort to live in unity. Make an effort to be at peace with your brothers. Make an effort to actually have the bond of fellowship. Make an effort not to, to divorce yourself from the community. It's actually a very good teaching. As Dallas, uh, he's, he says it sums it up really well, so I'm not going to make him a prophet or anything, but he did say grace is not opposed to effort. Okay? That, that's a very good saying. Grace is not opposed to effort. It's not in the Bible as a verse, but it's probably there in intention. Okay. Aaron, this brings up a really good issue. The majority of the world who doesn't sit around and wrestle with the scriptures like this, they go to church once a week, and they say, I believe, and they learn nothing. They don't study. They don't try to understand all these things we're talking about. What happens to them? Are they just as saved as the rest of us? I, these are things I think about. I know it's a difficult question. Well, it's not actually, because I'm not the judge, and, that, and I'm really glad I'm not. <laughs> Aaron, his, uh, Roddy's point's well taken, that they might meet God and say, depart from me, I never knew you. Right, yes, because you yes, just sort yes, of did an activity that, that and you true. didn't really know God, right? Yes, you do have warnings in the scripture, as we know, particularly from uh, the end times teachings that Yeshua gives us in Matthew 25, that there is this horrible, the horrible phrase, depart from me, I never knew you. Okay? Those are horrible words. None of us want, want to hear. But what they actually should do is actually should spur us as brothers and sisters to, um, to acknowledge that the Messiah has given us an incredible task to go out and share. We have the best story to tell. I mean, it's absolutely incredible. We have a God who has loved us so much that no matter what we've done, 
right? And, and you see that through the scriptures. The heroes of God fail again and again and again. And each time God is there waiting for repentance to pick them up, to encourage them, keep them going. And, uh, and he just says, keep going, keep going. I've got an incredible story. I love you so much. I'm going to redeem you. I'm going to make everything better. If it's dark, I'll bring light. If there's pain, I'll, I'll bring joy. If, you, if you're sick, I'll bring healing. Um, I can do it. And we've got an incredible story, so we need to share that. And, and we'll just leave it up to the Spirit. We'll leave it up to God to do the rest, and he will, will do, will do the, the rest. But when it comes down to those judging bits, yeah, there's still a judgment to come. But thanks be to God, I'm not the judge. Uh, but you and I have got, uh, got a great story to tell. And as we all know from this channel, okay, God is telling his story all over the world. And uh, we've, we've seen uh, Moti do it in, uh, in Turkey, in Germany. We've seen it around our community in other countries, in Romania uh, and Nigeria and here in Israel. And it's a joy. It's a joy to be a part of that. Okay. Which verse did we get up to? Ah, six. Okay. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor the circumcision counts for anything, only faith working itself through love. Now, faith is an action. It's not simply a belief because it's got to work itself through love. You can't believe yourself through love. It's not some intellectual thing that you just sit on the couch and just contemplate love and suddenly that sort of, you know, biosmosis infects your neighbor. It's something that you actually physically engage in. Now, that is not works righteousness. It's just the expression of faith. And uh, we've, we've talked about this so many times uh, on, on, on this channel, but, and we already know um, faith is a verb. It's actually an action. When Jewish people talk about in the ancient world and today, when they talk about faith, they ask, what are you doing? Right? Just as we looked in the book of Acts, Peter in chapter 2 stands up on the, on, the, on, the, on the temple mountain and the spirit has fallen, tongues of fire everywhere. He's preaching up a storm and people say, we believe, now what do we do? They don't say, who do we have to believe in? Just what do we actually do? Okay. And uh, Jesus as well in uh, John 6, they say, what do we do for the works of God? He says, well, believe. But, but belief is not just sitting in your head. Belief is? An action, even demons believe. You work out this, and then and this is the same here, that um, faith works itself out through action. So when we get to the, the later part of the, cha the, the chapter and we discuss some of the fruits of the Spirit, you'll see that those are actions. Patience is an action. Self-control is an action. Kindness is an action. It, those are not intellectual things. No one sits on the couch and says, I'm kind to people and does absolutely nothing. It's just not possible. No one would ever say that guy's kind. They'll say he's a couch potato. Okay? They won't say the word kind. Right? Um, these, are, these are actually actually actions. Could you, I ask uh, Arie what Greek word for love is being used there? Arie, are you here? So for those that don't know, Arie is um, our resident Greek scholar. This guy actually can read the text right off the pages. It's agape. It is agape. And the work is not a work, it's energizing, actively doing things. It's not the cocao or uh, other things that is laborious work in the field. It's uh, being in motion, doing something. Okay, can you unpack that for the um, listeners on podcast land? 
So what we're talking about here, guys, in podcast land is um, verse 6. In, in English, we're working out our faith through love. Aria can read Greek. The word love is agape, which is a special word for love in Greek. And what did you say the word work was, brother? Energeo, from which we get our energy. It's hmm. uh, expending energy and doing something, but it's not portrayed as uh, the laborious uh, work in the field or, or doing uh, hard task things. It's expending energy, doing something. Wow. Okay. And can you, can you say a few words on the word agape, the, the, that particular Greek word? Agape is a disinterested love, an unconditional love that resides in the lover regardless of uh, what the beloved does or is or etc. Nice. It's a self-sacrificial love thereby. It's not primarily emotional, but emotion, of course, is involved in it. Okay. We, uh, in our modern culture, are very uh, fond of our eros. Yeah. Well, especially in the male-female relationships, it sparks all kinds of uh, flighty, powerful, emotional, motivational things. But that's not primarily agapao, although it is emotional as well. Agape love is God's love. Is that right, Arie? You know, the first Corinthians yes. 13. Yes, it's the uh, word that the translators chose in the Septuagint, uh, especially for chesed. It's an interesting uh, 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 parallel. Ah, can you unpack that one a bit, um, Arie, for those that might uh, we have We have loving kindness in our Old Testament, and that really is the parallel to agape in the New Testament. Chesed. A love that is kind and is uh, good and uh, always of the same mind, always of the same character, never changes. Nice. That's why we have those numerous statements that God's mercy, it's in, mistranslated really. Mercy is uh, rachamim, but is loving kindness, goodwill, unquenchable, consistent, perpetual, eternal goodwill. It sounds, doesn't sound as nice as. Uh, you know, I love you, I fall in love, and that kind of stuff in our modern romanticism. But I'll, I'll take that anytime to uh, someone who may or may not fall in or fall out of love. <laughs> yeah, certainly. <laughs> I know, you know, often when I hear Aria talk, it's like, this actually sounds so much better in Greek. Thanks, man. Okay, mm -hmm. so the energy to work out the agape love that we have <clears throat> in God. Excellent. Verse 7. You were running well, not you were sitting well and waiting for the rapture. You were doing something. You were, you were, you were actually in the race because uh, Paul had been there. He had preached the gospel. People had received. They were energized. They were doing their, the, the community was growing. Who has hindered you from obeying the truth? Okay, so something has happened. Something false has come into the world into the Galatian community, and uh, Paul describes it as a hindrance. It's blocking them actually running now. Instead of running and progressing forward, they're not. And, uh, and it's certainly not the truth. It's, um, it's, it's actually against that. It would be the opposite thereof. Who has hindered you? Most likely because Paul actually physically has, doesn't know who they are. Um, he could probably call them out like he did Peter in, in Galatians 2. Uh, he doesn't actually physically know their names. He doesn't know, but, um, but he, he knows of their effect. Okay? These uh, inoc inoculous influences, whoever they are, someone's hindered them. 
This persuasion is not from him who calls you. This group of people who are talking to you, this group of people who have snuck in and started sharing this other, other gospel, they are actually not from the Messiah. They are not from the one who calls you. They're actually from uh, somewhere else. And, um, well, if you actually believe there's only two kingdoms in the world, kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of darkness, if they're not from the kingdom of heaven, then where are they from? Okay? It's, it's not, not a good side. Okay? A little leaven leavens the whole line. What do you think he means by that? I mean, it's an analogy, of course, but, um, and leaven isn't in, inherently a, an evil thing, but it's used in that, that way, in this way. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Where does that phrase come from? Any ideas? Lord Jesus used it when they were on the boat and he was telling about they didn't bring bread. And he equated, I think, to hypocrisy, didn't he, of the Pharisees? Yeah, that's right. So the hypocrisy that they, they're giving these people will actually just spread into the whole church. Yeah. The widow also that put the leaven and it grew like the yeah. kingdom of God. But there it's used as a positive thing. A positive, exactly, as something yeah. growing good, yes. Yeah. It's not inherently an evil thing. I mean, exactly. you consume it all the time, right? But there are times when you, it's used as a metaphor for something else. And so um, here it's probably being used as that part of the metaphor, right? that, that mm -hmm. idea. Um, mm -hmm. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Okay? Because if you're breaking bread, making bread, you kind of want it to do that. Right, you actually want it to fulfill its function, but here we're referring to actually the, the opposite wrong teaching, or it's uh, used as sin too, other places. But yeah, this in this case, it's a wrong teaching about salvation. In some, in some instances, it's used as that, and some, it's not. It's, uh, well, no, that's what Paul means here. It's wrong, something's wrong, something, something's come in and overtaken, yeah, it's, uh, and as a yeah, correct, uh, ruined everything. It's, it's, it's the influencers, right, that want to influence Yeah. Exactly. And um, I, I'm convinced Paul doesn't actually physically know who they are. I mean, he knows their teaching. You can see the fruit of it, and it's absolutely horrible. Uh, and he's very concerned about it, but he himself doesn't actually know who they are. I have confidence in the Lord, he says in verse 10, that you will take no other view. And the one who is troubling you, again, can't use their names because he actually probably doesn't know who they are. Okay, um, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. What penalty do you think he is referring to? Ultimately, standing before God, like we were saying. Yeah, sure. You got it wrong, buddy. Bam. That's right. Yeah. I, I like the way Paul says it. I have confidence in the Lord that you, you won't take the other view. They we're having a debate here. I'm, I'm giving my side of the argument. They're probably there giving their side of the argument, but I'm confident I'm actually going to win. And not only that, I'm even more confident that the other guys, well, they'll get their comeuppance sooner or later, and they're not going to like it. But brothers, <laughs> if I still preach circumcision, so he doesn't, which probably gives us a good incl in inclination that this is one of the Things that the ad, the influencers are advocating. They're advocating the works of the law, the circumcision. But I don't preach circumcision because you're, you're Gentiles. Why would I do such a thing? Why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. What's the offense of the cross? What's so offensive about 
the Messiah right, risen from the dead. First uh, Corinthians one twenty three. But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness. Okay, so what would be so foolish to, to Greeks? But What's to so those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. A stumbling block to Jews, foolishness to Greeks. What's so foolish to the Greek world about the cross? That somebody would die for us and then be able to rise up again. Yep. And, and isn't it interesting, Vita, that, that opinion hasn't changed? No. No, 2,000 years from now, you go to your average Gentile out there in the street and say, hey, Christ died for you, and he'd say, what the heck for? Well, if you say something to somebody in the street, God bless you, it's okay. But if you say, may the Lord Jesus bless you, then they get offended. That's right, yeah. Somehow there's a, there's a big difference. I mean, it's, 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 yeah, it's really quite incredible to, to try and say, because people actually get offended. Some, someone's got to die for me? Well, what kind of crazy religion is that? I mean, that's so antiquated. That's so medieval, you know, um, they, they can't seem to fathom this idea that actually this is a time immemorial thing, that the cross itself, the resurrection, there's not just the death, the resurrection is uh, an incredible story. And that's just, that's just foolishness to this world. No, no one actually rises from the dead. That's just not true. Yeah, Jesus might be, might be real. We might accept that he might be a real figure, but the resurrection was false. No, the body was hidden. We're going to go along with the idea that uh, they hid his body. You know, the Romans covered it all up. Don't know why, but it's just a story. It's all made up. But then again, now let's take him to the Jewish world. Okay? That's, that's the Gentile world, which still is alive to this day. Okay? Now let's go to the Jewish world. It's a stumbling block. What's so stumbling about a Messiah that rises from the dead? When? In the Second Temple period, there were traditions that talked about messiahs that would die and be resurrected. If you don't believe me, you only have to read Dead Sea Scrolls. And they talk about messianic characters that die and are then resurrected by other messianic characters. So there was, in Jewish traditions, this idea of redeemer figures dying and rising. Maccabees also talks about death being in a, a covering for the sins of the land and for the nation. Why do you think it's a stumbling block for Jewish people? Well, maybe Mochi can answer this, but I, I would guess that it would be because the, um, the Jewish people are in this place where they feel they've got to work, do the works for righteousness, and that it can just be a, um, they don't have to do anything, just doesn't make sense, that, that the Messiah has done it for them. Right. But maybe Mochi can... So, what was it like, brother? Because you're, you're our um, uh, resident rabbi. What was it like growing up vis-a-vis uh, -vis the Torah and vis-a-vis -vis, um, why Jesus, Yeshua, might have been a stumbling block, why he definitely wasn't the Messiah as you were growing up? Well, they don't have a, a correct claim for that. They just say that he didn't obey the Torah. He even said that Torah was no longer exist or no longer applied to Jesus, uh, Jewish people. So that was the, the problem. I mean, that's what they say because Jesus never said that, you know. Uh, the Torah is very important for a Jew. The Torah is eternal, so it will never ever finish an effect in a Jew's life. You know, it's, it's like a water for fish. So, but what they teach is that Jesus told 
the Jews that Torah was gone, Torah was, was finished, and it doesn't apply to your lives anymore. It's a good book to keep, but you, you are not under it anymore. But what we believe is that Torah is there, Torah is eternal, and every single Jewish person who is born to a Jewish mother is under the Torah. Either he believes or not, the law is there. So uh, in this case, maybe the Christians don't need to circumcise. I personally think that we need to circumcise our kids because God didn't say anything opposite. Even so the Messianic the Jewish... Jews, they still practice right. it, actually. So was the Jewish law, like living and growing up under that, Mahdi, was, like was it a heavy burden? Like, was there a lot of detail that was just sort yeah, of kind of a lot of know, stuff to remember and know and think about I and mean, do all the time? Maybe the, the law itself is very easy to keep. But rabbinic Judaism put a lot of yokes on it. Therefore, living under rabbinic Judaism was very difficult. Uh, a lot of rules on holidays, a lot of traditions that replaced the Torah, kind of. And it was a burden. But if you just simply live the holidays and practice Judaism, then it's not a huge burden for Jewish people. For example, using the smartphone. God didn't tell them, not to use the smartphone. Okay, so there was no smartphone at the time, but he just told them not to work. Do not work. But now playing with your smartphone, you're not working unless you're, you know, I'm just watching videos on YouTube. I'm not causing any work. And the video is already there. Nobody's working for me because if somebody's working for you, it's also not good. You know, like, like a vending machine. You can buy from a vending machine because you're not buying. It's already there. But the traditions and the rabbinic Judaism's law make the original law a difficult thing to follow. All right. May I read something from Ezekiel 14 that I've just seen? Yep, go for it. Ezekiel 14, verse 3. It says, okay. Son of man, these men have set up their idols in their hearts and put the stumbling block of their iniquity before their faces. Should I be inquired at all by them? So perhaps the stumbling block there is that they see themselves as righteous because they're doing all these laws. Uh, okay, that's one one interpretation. Yeah, the uh, the foolishness for Greeks, I think, is also akin to the idea of God actually dying. Yeah. Right? In in Greek theology, gods didn't die like that. If if gods ever were defeated by other gods, they would sort of put in other places and they often came back but this idea of a god dying the humans that was uh, just foolishness complete rubbish in terms of uh, the idea because physical nature was viewed as evil so why would a spirit want to even take on a human form and even do that but then in the in the jewish world righteousness coming from a messianic character well that was actually going to happen but how it was going to happen it was a, perhaps perhaps a stumbling block would, would be he wasn't obviously from the house of David. I mean, he was, but there was no, he didn't parade himself around like a king. How could I tell he was a king? He didn't, he didn't have a crown. He didn't have an, an army. He wasn't riding on a horse, etc. So there, it could have been that, could have been that uh, idea. Exactly how he was preaching the Torah, well, you know, that, that is debated. When you go into the Talmud, they have debates within themselves. Okay? What happens when the Messiah comes? What does Torah look like when Messiah comes? And some streams of Talmud say when the Messiah comes, Torah disappears. 
And other, other streams say, no, 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 when Messiah comes, he keeps Torah completely. You know, um, he's got, got multiple streams going on there. It's, it's an interesting, interesting thought. But, uh, but here, he is persecuted because of the offense of the cross has been removed. And what's the offense in this context? What has the risen Messiah done for Jews and Gentiles in this context? Made them equal. Absolutely. And that is so offensive to somebody. Somebody is so offended by people just instantly being equal. No, no, no. I've spent all my life working to be somebody else, and now you're telling me all i got to do is believe and that's it. And that guy who has never done anything like me, he's now equal with me, no, I'm offended. I can understand why they're offended, but still the truth. And, he uh, paid workers in the field, whether they were there an hour or there all day, they all got the same wage. Absolutely. Yes, once again, when, when God's mercy is poured out on humans, it's equal across the board. And that does offend some people. That, that, that is true. And, uh, and here Paul is saying, I get it, guys, some are offended, but it's the offense of the cross. Okay? It's, not, it's not actually uh, for me. Often some, some Christians are offended by new believers because, hey, I've been doing this all my life. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, that's right. Who's this young little upstart that got saved three days ago, you know, telling me what Bible says? You know, I've been preaching the Bible for 40 years. Uh, it's true. You, it can get a little that way. We have to take everything in perspective. But we also have to also acknowledge for the guy who has been preaching Bible for 40 years, uh, wisdom is wisdom. And we should also acknowledge that too. But in, it's also true in relation to the new believer. Let's not disparage them. Let's welcome them. Let's encourage them. Let's hear their heart and their thoughts, particularly on uh, the way that they're feeling about, about Bible. All right. Verse 12. Verse 12 is um, a strong sentence. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. All right. So, <laughs> yep. Because we're talking. A little about- too strong. It means <laughs> cut, cut themselves off. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's a little more than circumcision, isn't it, boys? <laughs> yeah. So somewhere along the line, the knife slipped, and uh, things aren't working out Oops. too well. In other words, Paul feels quite strongly about this, right? Because even yes, like even that good. second verse in fifteen two, there, you know, therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. So clearly, they were. It was a real divisive issue at the time, and they were really worked up about it. Yeah, Paul. Paul is incredibly strong. And um, and and what does the Greek say again? I already cut everything off. Is that right? No, cut them off. Cut them off. We supply the object of this only from the context. Okay. That, that completely <laughs> ties into Deuteronomy because, in the sense of cutting, castrating, or cutting out of the community, that's Deuteronomy twenty-three. It says. Verse one, no one whose testicles are crushed or whose nail organ is cut off shall enter the assembly of the Lord. Verse two, no one born of a forbidden union may enter the assembly of the Lord, even to the 10th generation. None of his descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord. So could it be a, a dual, like, you know, met- metaphorically in the terms of the physical organ, but in, in, as again, being cut out of the assembly. Right. So that would that would align with uh, I think what you're saying, Aria, that they actually Paul's actually advocating them to be cut off from the community. He's going to an ex- extreme image, yes. 
I would point out, however, that God uh, exercised mercy against that commandment in the Torah, and he invited the eunuchs back into his kingdom. Mm-hmm. Actually, yeah. that, that's true. Yeah, he does. And we see that clearly in the book of Acts, don't we? Where we see a eunuch actually traveling to Jerusalem for worship. It's originally from Isaiah for the returnees from uh, Babylon. And, you know, I'm not going into the synagogue. I'm not going to do this in the next next day. He's back in the synagogue. So Yeah, that's right. That's Paul for you. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So it's very yeah, interesting. So the, the, we derive from the context that he's discussing uh, a certain part of their body to, to cut off. But it could also be that um, he's describing them also to be cut out of the community that their fellowship within the community is done and their influence over the community is therefore gone and nullified. Uh, verse 13, for if you were called to freedom, brothers, and again, brothers, remember, that's a, a loaded term for Gentile. He is calling them brothers. Jews didn't normally call Gentiles brothers, but here he does. He's admitting that, that in the Lord they are indeed part of his family, and he's part of their family, we're all part of the same family. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, okay, but through love serve one another. And this, again, also harkens back to what our initial discussion, just because you're free in the Messiah doesn't mean you can do what you want, okay? So uh, there is um, obedience to God is, is okay. In fact, that's actually required. Um, but through love, serve one another. And these are action words. Love is an action. Serving is an action. You can't love somebody by sitting around doing nothing. It, that just doesn't work. There's, there's no way to serve somebody in love without physically doing anything. Yes, sir. There are days when I need to stay on the couch, and is that is the most loving thing I can do that day. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny <laughs> that's right so rocky's making a confession okay guys sometimes the most loving thing he can do for us as brothers and sisters is literally sit on the couch and rocky when that happens you appreciate it um however there are other days when you come and you participate in this study and you share with us and that is great and we appreciate that too and for those that haven't seen sometimes he also shares pictures of his garden as he tends creation, and he does a pretty good job. So uh, love Praise. is an act. Verse 14, for, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word. He then proceeds to say an entire sentence. Okay, don't you love his old one word thing? Okay. And if you were given the, the, the commandment, sum up the law in one word, what, what verse would you choose? Love. Love the? Just one word. Love. Sum up the entire Torah and the prophets. Yeah. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul. Oh, yeah. He and turns he around and he says, the second commandment is like that. He says it's here. The whole mm-hmm. law is fulfilled in one word. Love your neighbor as yourself. But Yeshua it's, said, greatest mm-hmm. commandment is? Love right? the Lord. Love God with all your heart. Yes. Mm-hmm. Why, does, why is there a subtle change? Why do you think? I would say the outcome of love is that action and god is love so he's just saying the terms of fellowship here because the emphasis is on the body of christ yep and that's how you act out that first one if you really love god with all your heart with all your mind with all your soul and then 
equal to that is love your neighbor. That's the action element of loving God. Does everyone understand what, what Stephen just said or kind of understand what he said? I think you're right, Stephen. It's a pretty good summation that uh, this is the outward display, the action of the heartfelt intention to love God. And so Paul is using it in, because it's in context of a community of Jews and Gentiles who are supposed to be loving towards each other, but they're not. They're actually being divisive and horrible and, and saying you're not equal and all that kind of stuff. He turns around and says, no, no, no. The whole law is supposed to love your neighbor. Supposed, the thing you're doing right now is not it. But this is actually what you're supposed to be. Well said, buddy. If you love me, you will do my commands. Correct. And it's exactly the whole concept of, of the, the influencers and, and bringing that harshness. And, you know, he states the same thing in, in the book of Romans um, 13, 8. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, murder, not steal, covet. All any other commandments are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. So in the sense of not as the influencers with the whole legalism, the way that they're bringing it, but actually, I think this is a great, this text in, in Romans is a great summation of what it is to really love. Right. And uh, again, he says, you know, love is the fulfilling of the law. So not in the way that the influencers are doing it, but in yeah. the way that part of the Torah, the intention of the Torah really wants Absolutely. us to do. Yeah, because he actually is quoting Torah to prove that Torah is actually correct. This was, this was the complete intention of the text. Because it, doing the opposite, which is um, where... You begin, instead of loving each other, you begin to attack each other and debate with each other and have spite with each other. He calls it in verse 15, bite one another, then you'll actually be consumed by one another. So if you as a community start actually nitpicking and start putting holes in each other and start attacking each other and start d d d pulling each other's do dogma down, you know what? You'll actually be consumed by each other. And throughout history, that's pretty much all we've seen. Whenever denominations just keep attacking each other instead of working together, all we end up doing is eating each other. And instead of growing, sharing, being the light, we turn around and we, we produce a, an apathy towards the church. Why would I want to join you guys? Because all you ever do is just nitpick against each other. Which church should I join anyway? If I join that one, these guys think I'm idiots. If I join them, you guys think I'm idiots. Why join one? May as well just may just think I'm idiots right now. Um, we really do have a lot to get, get ourselves together. It's as... interesting, Aaron, because the cross-reference there is, well, one that cross-reference in my Bible is uh, Leviticus 19.18. And what is this connection, you guys? You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. It's yeah. interesting that he says that, and then he says, I am the Lord. What is the significance of that? That's deep, right? Yep, there are several times in Leviticus where God gives a command and he says, I am the Lord. And when he does, it's, uh, it, it's a heavy statement. Love your neighbor because I am the Lord. This is intrinsic to my character. It's interesting, you know, in the Talmud, you have that, that passage where, you know, Rabbi, the one he says, 613, David comes up to 11, Isaiah 
you know, when it sums up to, into one sentence, he, he does six, Micah three, and then, uh, yeah, Isaiah again, two, righteousness, yeah, and then Habakkuk says one, the righteousness shall, shall live by his trusting, and then Yeshua comes up and says, your neighbor. Yeah, love God and love your neighbor. On these two commandments hang the entire Torah and the prophet. Exactly. And, uh, and, and then, yeah, the, in Jewish exegetical tradition, yeah, things go out and then they collapse back in again. Mm-hmm. And we do the same. We say, love God. Okay, I'll love God. How? And now we start to describe the how. Okay? Um, like, for example, we took our uh, young friend to the beach. Um, little young lady friend here, and um, and uh, to so here we are at the beach of the Canaret, and oh. uh, this is fantastic. So, what does she do? She takes her clothes off. Okay, it just starts tripping. Okay, as opposed to actually believers, you can't do that. You know, um, that's actually inappropriate. Well, it doesn't say that in the Bible. Okay, love God. I'm loving God. What's this got to do with uh, okay? So we create, we we shrink it down and then we expand it up. Okay, so we do have we always like to add a few rules. Actually, this is not what that looks like. Did Michelle have to talk to her? That was the one who did it. Yeah, I ain't doing it. (laughs) Synergy is also a um, something that can take place if people are going to rather than. Um, consume each other but support each other not on the the account of what they're doing or their ministry or their good works but that can be passively or actively supporting to one another in their ministry i think it's interesting if by looking at ephesians and galatians you can take it to the macro with the church fellowship and you can take it to the micro within the family because you have a neighborhood that has a dynamic of families and Christians, and then all of a sudden the family blows apart, and people wonder, are them, I mean, and they start devouring one another. And you see that whether they're Christian or not, yeah. you know, uh, you, where they just consume instead of love. It's a, it's a, guys, it's a, it's a good lesson for all of us. We, we can't be like the world that way. We, we, we must right. be each other. We must do our best to support each other. Sometimes that's really hard. Let's be honest. Sometimes it's hard, particularly to support people who don't think like you. Particularly, to, you know, someone has a different opinion on communion. Someone has a different opinion on what priests should wear or whether we should even call them priests in the first place. You know, um, whether we should worship in a building on a Sunday or outside in the garden on a Wednesday. You know, and you think, oh, my gosh, we're arguing over this stuff. Stop it. Who cares? Uh, we really should just support each other, defend each other, protect each other. And that is a strong voice for the kingdom of heaven. That's a, a strong witness for the Lord. And, uh, and that will attract people. Because this world, oh my gosh, this world eats itself. And you all know that. Uh, the culture can't stop itself from eating each other. You, you can't, you can't do, it doesn't matter what you do, you cannot satisfy this culture. They will find something wrong with you and tear you apart. 
but we must not be like no that. We have, to, we have to be the no redemption. Yeah, exactly. We have to offer redemption. We have to offer repentance. We have to offer forgiveness, for crying out loud. We have to forgive each other and walk with each other in that forgiveness. And uh, that, I think, will be quite attractive to the world. You know, that's the forgiveness Yeshua offers. That's the redemption the Messiah gives to a broken world. Okay, guys, thanks for listening. We will continue on next week with Chapter 5. See you soon. Thank you for listening. Our sermons and Bible studies are on all your favorite podcasting platforms. Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and more. Sermons can also be found on YouTube. Follow us on Facebook for alerts on live streams. If you are blessed by these teachings, please prayerfully consider giving toward the work of Christchurch. Visit ChristChurchJerusalem.org Blessings from the City of the Great King